word to describe our passage for today is relevant because this morning we're going to talk about anxiety or worry. Is that relevant to anyone in the room? An article in Medical News Today says that according to some observers, anxiety is now snowballing in the United States. It reports that in August 2018, Barnes & Noble, the largest book retailer in the U.S., announced a huge surge in the sales of books about anxiety, a 25% jump from 2017. Today, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting around 40 million adults, almost one in five people. The article says that when it comes to anxiety disorders, the Americans, uh, that's us, are head and shoulders above all other regions, including Africa and Europe. Can you believe it? We're the most anxious. A couple other polls by the American Psychiatric Association, 2017 and 2018, they found that nearly two-thirds of a thousand people were extremely or somewhat anxious, and that more than one-third were more anxious the following year than they had been the year before. And guess what? I'm sorry to pick on you again, but guess who is the most anxious of all groups in the U.S.? Millennials. <laughs> sorry, you guys. <laughs> Someday I'm going to preach a, a sermon just on how wonderful millennials are. Would that be all right? I'm sorry. I'm just repeating the statistics to you. But I think even more concerning th than all this is the rise in anxiety among children. This is according to the National Institute of Health. Nearly one in three of all adolescents ages 13 to 18 will experience an anxiety disorder. And between 2007 and 2012, anxiety disorders in children and teens went up 20%. So these stats, combined with the rate of hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers, also doubling over the past decade, leaves us with many concerning questions. We do have questions, don't we? about anxiety, our own anxiety, anxiety in the life of someone we love, questions about what causes anxiety, questions about what is the cure, what is the antidote for anxiety. Now, do you want some good news? You want some good news? As always, Jesus has the answers, right? We have the questions, Jesus has the answers. And if you don't believe that, there's really no reason to be here this morning. Because if Jesus can't address and give answers to our most pressing needs right now, then why worship Him? Why claim that He is our Savior or the Son of God? But if He is those things, and He is those things, then each of us need to listen to what He has to say and to believe. To believe that when you are in Christ... You do not have to worry. When you are in Christ, you do not have to worry. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return to Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take those. If you're using the one in the pew, you'll find Matthew 6 on page 811. When you found your place, if you'll stand so we might hear read together the word of the living God.
Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of a field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, this very common passage, so well known. Perhaps, Lord, because there's so much worry and anxiety in us. So teach us, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word this morning. Transform us through that truth and through the power of your spirit. Make us people, Lord, of great faith, whose lives are free of anxiety and worry. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we're just going to look at two, only time for two antidotes that we find in this passage that Jesus presents to us. Antidotes for anxiety. And the first antidote for anxiety is that you and I must know our identity. We must know who we are in Christ. So again this week when we look at the passage we find that it has bookends just like last week. A repeated phrase at the beginning and at the end of the passage that shines the light on the exact spot in our hearts and our lives that needs to be healed or transformed or brought in truth or brought in line with the truth of God's word. Look in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now look at verse 34. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. And in this particular passage, Jesus states the command not only at the beginning and the end, but also in the middle. Look in verse 31. Jesus says there, Therefore do not be anxious. Jesus must know that anxiety is like this giant in our heart. And it's a giant that is not easy to topple. And so Jesus chops away at this giant of anxiety even more persistently. Be not anxious. Whack. Be not anxious. Whack. Be not anxious. Whack. He chips away at the giant until it falls. Jesus is seeking to transform us, you and me. 
from people who worry into people who do not worry. But let's be clear about what Jesus is addressing here when Jesus uses the word anxious. The word in Greek that he uses means undue concern, undue concern or apprehension. It means paralyzing anxiety or worry that cripples its victims with dread. One commentator found that the word is also used in the context and associated with insomnia, which indicates that the kind of worrying that Jesus is talking about here is the kind of worry or anxiety that keeps us up at night. How often does that happen to you? You can't go to sleep, or you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. Your mind won't stop. The same people who cause worry or anxiety keep coming to your mind, the same situations They cause anxiety or worry. They just keep marching through your mind. They won't give you peace. That's the kind of worry that Jesus is speaking about here. How do you talk yourself out of that kind of worry, particularly in the middle of the night? How do you make it go away? Well, see, Jesus gives us truth here to fight our bedtime battles. I should probably rephrase that and say that Jesus gives us truth here that lets us win our bedtime battles so that we can say along with David, Psalm 4, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sound good to you? Lying down in peace, sleeping in peace, the first antidote. Or anxiety that will accomplish that good thing in our lives, eliminate the worry, is to know our identity. Look at the end of verse 26. Jesus says there, your heavenly Father. Look at the end of verse 32. Again, Jesus says, your heavenly Father. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says 15 times, 15 times, your heavenly father and once he says our father it's on purpose that jesus refers to god as our father over and over and over again because he's impressing on the audience that's listening to him and he's impressing on us this morning through his word our identity you and i are children of our heavenly father and that's the truth with which Jesus intends that you and I will combat and defeat anxiety in our lives. You belong to God. You are God's child. Now that truth might not help very much with anxiety if Jesus did not also qualify that relationship. Because too many children have terrible relationships with their fathers. And for too many people, their relationship with their father is the source of anxiety in their lives. But that's not true of our Heavenly Father. Look in verse 26. Jesus says, asks the people, Are you not of more value than the birds of the air? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, Jesus, yes. We are of more value than the birds of the air. Yes, Jesus, the Heavenly Father, our Father, values me. If you have any hope for defeating anxiety, the first thing you must do is embrace this identity. 
tell yourself you are valued by God because of Jesus. If you don't embrace his identity, you will live and you will worry as if you are not valued by the Lord because of Jesus. I want to drive this point home about our identity a little further. Because who we perceive ourselves to be is at the very core of everything we do. We speak, we act, we think, we plan in order to gain an identity that we want or in order to retain an identity that we have tried to craft very carefully and not just before other people. We try the same thing too often before the Lord, striving to be someone before Him, whereby we might earn His favor or keep the favor we already have. Last week, we talked about our treasures. And we said that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. The joy set before him was Jesus' reward. What we did not do was define what that joy is. And this is so important. That joy for Jesus is not just about heaven and going back to heaven. The joy for Jesus is about who will be in heaven because of the cross. That is Jesus' reward. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Can you believe it? We are gifts given by God to Jesus. He says so. Ephesians 4, 8 says, When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's a picture for us of a triumphant Christ, of the resurrected Christ, and he is leading, he's first, he's heading a victory parade. And following behind him as he leads are the spoils of his victory, everything he won because he won the battle. And what he won in his great battle is you and me and every other person that the Father gave to him. We are his reward. Is that good news? Jesus kept his eye on us. It's because he kept his eye on us, his reward, that he did not give in to the temptation of Satan. When Satan tempted Jesus, as we saw last week, offering him, showing him, offering him the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus would only bow before him, that temptation was so real because the kingdoms of the world would ultimately belong to Jesus anyway. Scripture teaches us that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. All-inclusive. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King. The temptation for Jesus was to take a shortcut to that kingdom. The temptation for Jesus was immediate gratification. 
The temptation was to skip the cross, skip the pain, skip the suffering, have it all right now and have it all right easily. And had Jesus given in to that temptation, had he bowed before Satan, he would have had no reward. He would have had no victory train. He would have had no spoils. He would have lost all that the Father had given to him. He would not have had us. And you and I, we would still be hopeless and helpless, burdened by a weight and debt of sin that will always and forever keep us out of the presence of God. And it's a debt that we have no ability to pay. So, in order to receive the treasure, you and me, and all the Father has for him, Jesus did not give in to temptation. He went to the cross. That's how much he values and how much he treasures us. So think about it for a moment. What kind of God must he be to consider people like you and me treasures? You've got to think about it. And so do I, because that changes the way that we think about the Lord. See, Satan has made it his goal from the beginning of human history to make people think wrong thoughts about God. He does everything in his power to malign the character of God to your heart and to mine. So he said to Eve, did God really say, i.e., let me plant the thought in your mind that God is a liar, that God tells you something that is not true. But God always and only speaks what is true. And so what is true, and what he tells us this morning, is that we are his treasured possessions and that God is our Father. That is our identity. And that's what corrects wrong thoughts that you might have even right now about God. Wrong thoughts about how he acts in your life. You can correct those wrong thoughts by embracing this identity. By calling yourself God's treasure. Because to be God's treasure demonstrates God's great grace and his great power to save and to restore and to renew. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up so with him, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I like how the New Living Translation translates verse 7. It says that God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness toward us. Listen to Paul's testimony. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that is, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, it's because of passages like this that people like you and me have often been referred to as trophies of God's grace. We are trophies of God's grace. And what does a trophy say to everybody who sees it when you hold it up or when you put it on the shelf in your office or bedroom? That trophy says, I'm a winner. I got the trophy. You and I, as God's treasures, say, God wins. <laughs> Jesus wins. He's the victor, and we are the trophies of his victory. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Oh, it's great. This is, to me, the most overwhelming thought that we can ever lay hold of, that the almighty, everlasting, eternal God is vindicating himself and his holy nature and being by something that he does in us and with us and through us. He is going to put us on display, as it were. There is going to be a glorious exhibition. He's already doing it. But it's going to continue in the ages to come. And at the consummation, God is going to open his last great exhibition. And all these heavenly powers and principalities will be invited to attend. And the curtain will be drawn back and God will say, look at them, trophies of his grace. We couldn't have a greater antidote for worry than this. We are loved by the one and only true and living God. A God who's all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present with us. He's for us. He values us. I think that's difficult for us to believe. I think Jesus knows that that's difficult for us to believe. Because after all, the good news really does seem too good to believe, doesn't it? And so I think that's why Jesus says at the end of verse 30, Oh, you of little faith. He doesn't say, Oh, you of no faith. The faith is there. It's just not strong. Not strong enough to defeat that giant of anxiety. So we have to increase our faith. We must always be telling our hearts and our minds what is true. Why should anxiety be present in or wreck the lives of those who are treasures of Jesus? So do this. Put your identity up against your anxiety. Put your identity against your anxiety and see what happens to your anxiety. Or go ahead and think through. The worst case scenario concerning your particular anxiety. No matter the worst case scenario, you are still loved by the Father. You are still Christ's reward. And through you, God will display the power and the glory of his grace. You need not be anxious about anything. Oh, I'm going to calm down. Let's move to the second antidote for anxiety. And the second antidote is that you and I must trust God's sovereign will. Look in verse 32. 
Jesus says there that your heavenly Father knows you need them all. He knows your every need. Your Father knows you. He knows me. In fact, there's not one single thing about you or about me that God doesn't know completely. And his knowledge is up to date. Jesus speaks in the present. God knows right now. It's not as if God is in the dark until we decide to enlighten him about what our needs are or what our anxieties are. He already knows them. And he already knows what absolutely is the best thing for you. One of the problems that we face in a passage like the one we have before us this morning is that you and I are not dumb. You know, we look around the world and we see what's happening in the world. And we see that God's children are not being provided for. We see that God's children are being persecuted. As you've heard already, we've just spent this last week praying for brothers and sisters, other believers in Christ who are persecuted. Some have lost their lives. Because of persecution. In some places in the world, believers die of starvation. So how do we get Jesus off the hook here? In what he says to us and what he promises us in this passage. Well, as always, we look to the life of the one who spoke these words. Jesus. His life was not spared. Was it? He faithfully prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? And I think we can say that in his humanity, Jesus felt anxiety when he thought about the cross. And so he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, If my Father, if possible, make this cup, may this cup be taken from me. Lord, take the cross away. Don't let it become a reality for my life. But Jesus followed that prayer, as you know, with not my will, but your will be done. Now, what are we going to say to Jesus? Is that a cop-out? Since he didn't really believe that God had the power or could really save him, he just tacks on, okay, Lord, or whatever your will be done. Is Jesus giving God a way out? Do we say that God was not true to his character? That God was not true to his promise in these verses in Matthew 6 to value and to know and to provide for Jesus by not saying okay to Jesus' prayer? No. The truth is that God the Father is most true to his character in not answering Jesus' prayer, that in some way made Jesus so anxious that he sweat great drops of blood. God best displays his character, his compassion, his grace, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he is a God who seeks and saves the lost. He best displays that character by not answering Jesus' prayer and by not taking away the cross that made Jesus so anxious. Clearly, God is powerful. In three days, God would demonstrate His great power that we are so prone to doubt. 
when he raised Jesus again from the dead. Power is not the problem here. It never is. Not valuing Jesus is not the issue here. God's sovereignty is the issue. And what we see in Jesus is submission to the sovereignty of God. The cross was the plan from all eternity past. And scripture regularly refers to the cross as a mystery. That God, the Son, would give his life so that people like you and me might live. We sang it this morning. Tis mystery, all immense and free. We do not know how God is putting all the puzzle pieces together. We don't know that it is not a, a grace of the Lord. We don't know that it's not a, a mercy from God to release His sons and His daughters from this life at the hands of persecutors. They lose this world, but they gain Christ. And, and what of us? who don't face this kind of persecution. What lessons have we learned from God not answering our prayers as we prayed them, when we weren't healed from the sickness, when the, the, the bill that worried us was never paid, or whatever the situation is in your life? What have you learned by Jesus not answering your prayer the way you prayed it that you would have never learned apart from that experience? And how often have we said afterward, thank you, you, Lord, you value me enough to let me learn through this experience. You value me enough to draw me nearer to you through this prayer that was not answered in the way I wanted it answered. None of that negates the truth of what we find in this passage. Finding the good in a bad situation is not just an easy way out to explain away something so that we protect Jesus and, and prevent him from being a liar. God does value. God does know. God does provide. Every promise of Jesus is real and true. But they must be seen in light of God's sovereignty. His best care for us may come to us, when he doesn't provide the thing for which we ask. And he might demonstrate how much he values us by not answering our prayers in the way we ask them. I don't say all of this to take away your security. I don't say these things to increase your anxiety by making you think, well, God can provide for me, but how do I know that this is not the time when he won't provide for me, so I'm going to worry no, I say this so that all of us will trust in God's sovereignty. So that we will believe that God does know us and that God does know what's best for us. To know that his provision might be different than we asked. But to know that Jesus is accomplishing something in us better than we ever asked or even imagined. You did not need providing for in the way you thought you needed providing for. Perhaps you need a cross, like the one that did not get taken away from Jesus. That may be how God best provides for you. That may be 
best how God shows you that he values you. And knowing that he values you and knowing his will is what keeps you and me free from worry. We must be people of faith who really, truly believe this. Otherwise, we'll be like the pagans or the Gentiles that Jesus mentions here in verse 32. To live like a pagan, to live like a Gentile, is just to live like one who does not know God. It's to live like one who is not in relationship with God. Or it's to live as if your relationship with God has no real value in your real life. It's nice for Sunday mornings, maybe community group. But on Monday, when I go to the office, when I go to school, when I go to the factory, when I'm trying to keep home and hearth together, God doesn't really enter in then. Reason does. Reason does. That's pagan. Common sense does. That's pagan. Impulses do. That's pagan. But God in His radical promises and His radical claims, well, not so much. Either your faith intersects with your life or it doesn't. And intersect isn't even an accurate word. Either your faith and the Christ of your faith supersedes everything in your life and my life, or it isn't true faith. Jesus reminds us of our finiteness in this passage. He asks in verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And the answer is, no one. No one among the audience of Jesus' day, no one here in this room can add to their life by worrying. So listen, lack of food is not going to take your life from you one minute before God is ready for you. And guess what? Having a full cupboard is not going to prolong your life for you longer than Jesus has determined that you will live. Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows all our days. Job 14, 5 reminds us that man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he can not pass. We can go no further, no longer than the Lord allows. Worrying about your life will not prolong it. The biggest concern that all of us in this room should have right now is our relationship with the Lord. If you are worried about that relationship, if you are anxious about that relationship, then you will worry. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, and you're here this morning, you should worry. Because you have no real hope. The hope you have, if it's not in Christ, it's not real. If you are a believer in Christ, and you're not living 
as one who claims to know and love Christ, you will worry. I know you'll worry. I worry. We will worry about that last minute when it comes if we're not living as those who claim to love and follow Christ. And we'll be robbed of the joy and the peace and the anticipation of that moment because we aren't living out of our identities in close relationship with the Father because we are not submitting to His will. Instead, we are living our own. But Jesus wants that peace and joy for you and me. So all of us need to examine our relationship with Christ. What's it like right now? If it isn't existent, make it existent. Turn in faith to Christ. If you're already a believer, stay close to Christ. Submit to His will. Claim your identity as a child of God and live like one. Do not worry. Increase your faith. You are the precious treasure of Jesus. Do not worry. Increase your faith. God is doing in your life what is for your best good and for His greatest glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word of comfort. Thank you for the promises of it. Lord, we pray that you would help all of us to keep you at the center of it and not ourselves. Lord, when we are at the center of our lives, when we're consumed with self and worry and anxiety, Lord, there's no help for us. There's no hope for us. But when we can get beyond ourselves and see the bigger picture of you and who you are and how you see us and what you're doing in this world and in our lives, then we can sing loudly and with great joy and gusto, it is well with my soul. Because we know our identity, Lord, and because we can submit to your will. Lord, I pray that you would help us do that every day. Lord, if there are people in the room this morning who have never trusted you, Lord Jesus, because they've never seen how beautiful and loving and gracious you are. Spirit of God, I pray that you would open their eyes right now to see all of those things. Pray that they would see no matter how they view themselves, that they would instead see how you view them, Lord Jesus, what you are willing to freely do for them right now in this moment, if they will confess that they have no hope, they have no help, they have no life apart from you. Lord, you must be the one to cleanse and forgive. You must be the one to breathe real life, true life, forever life into them. And Lord, I pray that that would happen in this moment. Lord Jesus, for those of us here in the room who know you and love you, give us great peace and joy because we stay so close to you, because we claim our identity as your greatly loved treasure so we stay near to you and so we can see all of our lives no matter what may come our way as part of your sovereign plan and that we might say and sing it is well with our souls we pray these things in jesus name amen